I always like to say that businesses these days need to think of themselves as mini media companies, putting out consistent, high quality content on a weekly basis. But what does that mean, content? Well, stick around because in this week's episode, I'm going to explain what content strategy is. I'm going to show you how it can help your business. And then I'm going to explain the best ways to get started. If you're struggling to gain traction, or if you've been wondering what else you can do to move the needle in your business, this is one episode you don't want to miss. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who can see when shown, and those who will never see. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for everyone in the middle. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. Now each week I choose a different topic, we explore that topic, we pick it apart, hopefully by the end we come across some useful insights, and then we always finish up with an assignment. I leave you with a short actionable task, something you can do right away to start implementing the concepts and ideas that we talk about here on the show, because I believe information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now this week, we're talking all about content strategy. But before we dive in too deep, let's first talk about transactions, and then let's talk about ways in which they've shifted over the past 20 years. Since the beginning of time, merchants have basically sold one of three things, products, services, or experiences. That's it. Just about everything I can think of falls into one of these three categories. If you're selling shoes, you're selling a product. A financial advisor is providing a service. A ticket to Disney World offers the consumer an experience. The wine shop sells a product. An advertising agency offers their services to their clients. A massage therapist offers an experience. And that seems simple enough, right? In fact, when you boil it down to its most basic elements, a transaction is a pretty straightforward interaction. You're offering something that the customer values. Seth Godin once said, a transaction only works if there is a benefit to both parties. The merchant sells a product for more than it costs them to make, and the consumer pays more for it than they believe it's worth. Now let me complicate things just a little bit. Does a restaurant sell a product, a service, or an experience? You can make the case for any of them, right? I mean, the restaurant serves food and beverage. Those are products, but then they're also serving you, preparing the food, bringing it to you, clearing it away, refilling your drinks, and those are services. And of course, a night out is also an experience. Why else would people get dressed up and go out for a fancy meal or, or wait for an hour for a table? If they just needed food, they could easily go elsewhere to get fed, but no, People put in their names at the front podium and wait hours sometimes for that food for a unique experience. So whether that's at El Cheval in Chicago or the Cheesecake Factory in your hometown, both places are offering up experiences. Now, let's go one further, and I want to talk about media companies. Let's take television, for example. Is it a product, a service, or an experience? Stumped? Let me tell you. Before we can determine what's for sale, we have to first understand the premise of the transaction. 
And the reason I think you're stumped is because you're probably thinking about this the wrong way. You and I are not the consumer when it comes to television. We are the product. We are the thing that's being sold. Because how do television networks make money? Most of it comes from selling ads. So a sitcom is an entertainment. They make it interesting enough for you to keep watching, hopefully sticking around to the end, and the networks then sell ad space in the breaks in the show. And when you look at it that way, TV networks are selling eyeballs. The more eyeballs watching the TV, the more money they can demand from their advertisers. In all, that's actually a pretty simple model. Make the show funny enough, moving enough, compelling enough to get people to stick around to the end or to tune in week after week. Then you charge companies money for the privilege of reaching that captive audience. For more than 50 years, that was the model, and it continued basically unchanged for all that time. People weren't making good television for art's sake. They were doing it so that people would keep watching, so that the networks could sell more ads. It's a simple transaction as long as you understand what's being sold and who's doing the buying and who's doing the selling. So in time, that model began to shift uh, as with premium cable networks like HBO and Showtime. And this was good entertainment just for the sake of it. People paid a monthly subscription fee to get access to the programming on those channels. Okay, so you pay for access, and in exchange, you aren't bothered with annoying ads for laundry detergent. Easy enough model, right? In this model, yes, the TV viewer is the consumer once again. The network is the merchant selling their programming, their product. Now, what about newspapers and magazines? Kind of the same model as TV, if you think about it. Fill the pages with articles and features and photos, and then every so often, sell ad space. Once again, in this transaction, the reader is the product that's being sold. The magazine is selling eyeballs. Get more eyeballs, and they can demand a higher price for a full-page ad. Now, this all might sound a bit familiar because we've talked about this in the past. This is something marketers call interruption marketing. And for all intents and purposes, it's the old way of doing things. You're looking at something you want to see, like a magazine article, and then the marketer interrupts you by showing you something they want you to see. But this whole thing has been upended over the last just two decades. So for television, it was DVR that changed the model. For newspapers, it was the advent of the internet. For magazines, it was e-readers and tablets. New technologies emerge and new solutions are born. For example, marketers invented the takeover ad, an ad that blows up and fills the entire computer screen trying to get you to click somewhere on that pop-up. Newspapers have also put up paywalls on their websites, another modern invention. Another new revenue stream came in the early 2000s when advertising companies started developing something called product placement. How does that work? Well, some screenwriter decides that Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory is going to order a soda at the restaurant. Is it going to be Pepsi or Coke? Well, the writer doesn't really care which one it is, so the producer sold that line as ad space. Excuse me, something I can get for you, sir? Make it a Diet Coke. And bam, the brand gets a boost. Coke is paying for their product to be prominently placed on screen within the action of the episode for even just a few seconds. And think about it. A big Hollywood star on one of the biggest shows ever to air on TV just called for the brand by name and then sips it on camera for the next 30 seconds. 
it didn't matter if the people at home fast-forwarded through the commercials. They had found another way, perhaps a better way, to advertise their product. As advertisers will tell you, it's all about making an impression. So Carrie Bradshaw and her friends didn't just get a reservation for lunch. They were dining at The Modern. Phil Dunphy didn't just want a tablet. He was dying for the iPad. And James Bond doesn't just drive a nice car. He drives an Aston Martin. It became all about aligning your brand with the right kinds of entertainment, with the right kinds of audiences, to have the right kind of show feature your product, the right kind of character to dine at your restaurant. So again, the viewer is the product and the transaction is maybe a little less transparent than when advertisers just paid for commercial spots, but it's still a pretty simple transaction. Now from there, you can draw a direct line to social media these days, the power of influencers. Every market has their own list of notable influencers, a group that has access to the audience you wish to reach. These influencers develop a persona. In many ways, they are one-dimensional. Their audience doesn't want to know everything about them. They just tune in for the one thing. So there are travel influencers who zip all around the world, staying in luxury hotels and swimming at fancy swimming pools and high-end resorts. There are foodies who have made a name for themselves dining at all the best restaurants in the country. Fitness influencers who share tips and info about meal prep, exercise routines, and supplements. There are influencers for just about every area of our lives, including fitness, food, travel, parenthood, craft-making, painting, dance, home-brewing, and on and on and on. They succeed when they create personas, one-dimensional versions of themselves. Now think about your own habits online. Why do you follow certain accounts? I have a couple of big tattoos, and so I love to follow tattoo artists, but I don't need to see them on vacation, and I don't care what they ate for dinner last night. No offense to them, but I love their work, and so I follow them to keep up on their work. That's what I want from the tattoo artists I follow. I also follow restaurant accounts because I love food and wine, and I love to keep up to date on the industry as a whole, so I want to see food, beverage, the dining room. That's what I want out of that kind of account. Now remember, we started this whole thing talking about transactions, identifying how certain businesses make money. And I want you to see the power of media these days because it has all changed. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, attention is the real currency these days. Capture attention and you have a chance to forge a relationship. In time, that helps build trust, and trust eventually will lead to a sale. It's not enough just to sell a product these days. The world is too noisy, and you have to find new ways to stand out, better ways to build a tribe of passionate customers. So how do you do that? The key is through content strategy. And the thing I'm always telling my clients is this. Think of yourself as a mini media company. So CNN has programming 24 hours a day on TV, plus the content on their website as well as on their blog. But the brand is also in social media, and so are their anchors and their hosts putting out content of their own. They are accessible all the time through a variety of different channels. They have built a strong customer base, and their content helps build trust. Well, restaurants should do the same, and not because you can make the advertising dollars that we spoke about a few minutes ago but for another even more crucial reason. It captures attention. Simply put, it is the single best way to grow your audience. And a captive audience 
is one of the most valuable things to have in business these days. So earlier in the episode, we talked about interruption marketing. You're doing something you want to do, reading a magazine article or, or watching a TV show or listening to your favorite podcast, and bam, you're interrupted with an ad of, of some sort. But the opposite of that is something called permission marketing. And we spent an entire episode talking about this when we discussed email marketing, um, you know, way back, I don't know, two months ago. Seth Godin, yes, him again, he coined the term 20 years ago in a book by the same name, and he defines it as this. Permission marketing is the privilege, not the right, of delivering anticipated, personal, and relevant messages to people who actually want to get them. Does that sound familiar? This podcast is part of my content strategy. So about a year ago, I wanted to find ways of reaching new people who I knew could learn from my experiences. My audience is very specific. This podcast is for restaurant professionals, particularly chefs and restaurant owners, people in leadership positions who are looking for ways to grow their business. So for people who want that kind of content, they know to come here. And in just the six months since I launched this podcast, I've gotten thousands of downloads and added hundreds of new subscribers to my list. These are people who want to keep up to date with what I'm doing, people who want to learn more about the things I discuss here on the show. Now, why did I do that? Well, let's talk a bit about my business. I run a consulting firm, an agency where I work with a variety of restaurants to help them with their digital marketing efforts. But I've reached my cap. If I want to make more income, I have two choices. Either I take on more clients or I can charge more money. And neither of those options are particularly ideal for me. The first one, take on more clients, is difficult because I only have so much time and I don't want to spread myself too thin. The second, charging more money, isn't really appropriate because I know what restaurant owners are up against. I understand the razor-thin profit margins and I know that every dollar they pay me comes directly out of their own pocket. There is a limit to how much I want to charge for my services. And so I decided to start laying the foundation for a new business model. Instead of one-to-one, -one, I'm starting to envision what one-to-many might look like. Maybe that's a series of hands-on workshops down the line or an online course or a series of coaching sessions. Who knows? I'm not there yet. But this podcast is the foundation for whatever may happen in the future. This is the free content I give out happily a way of introducing myself to a new audience week after week. You guys out there are getting to know me and hopefully applying the lessons and seeing the results, which in turn, I hope, helps build trust. So this is part of a bigger plan for me, and the podcast is the first all-important step. Cultivating an audience is one of the most important things you can do these days as a business owner, and it doesn't matter whether you sell products, services, or experiences. You need to find your audience. You need to identify them, and then you need to keep in touch with them by providing something they need. You have to serve that audience just like I am serving mine. Now, in the restaurant, uh, I guess that's easy, right? People need dinner. You serve them dinner. But what about growing that audience and building loyalty or brand recognition beyond the time they spend within the four walls of your restaurant? Many industries out there do this well, but I find that restaurants are always woefully behind the times. And that's why I'm always urging people to find some way to stay in touch with their audience. Okay, so now that we've laid the foundation for today's episode, we're ready to dive in. First, we have to define content strategy. 
Simply put, it means utilizing content to help identify an audience, grow that audience, and leverage that audience's attention by providing something they need. It's just an extension of what you're already doing. It all comes down to serving your audience. They need something that you have, so don't withhold it. Now, specific goals will dictate your strategy, which will in turn dictate the channels you use and the kind of content you put out. Let's take Squarespace, for example. Squarespace is an online tool, a do-it-yourself website builder. Their, their website does most of the selling for them, showing off the different templates and guiding prospective buyers to their free two-week trial. But then they have a blog and a YouTube channel, plus all of their social pages, and they utilize each of those in different ways. The YouTube channel is a way of helping users troubleshoot common problems they face. Not sure how to do this? Well, click here. Looking to do this? Follow this tutorial. They put out new videos every so often to help their subscribers and their potential subscribers. And see, that's the beauty of their YouTube channel. They are serving two important groups at the same time. The first are people who have bought the product but find themselves frustrated because they don't know how to bend the site to do what they wanted to do. So they help people over those hurdles. Now, the second group are potential buyers. There's a whole group who likes the product and wants to believe they can build a site themselves, but they have reservations. When they see the resource guide up on YouTube, many of them are put at ease. They think, oh, well, they'll be able to, to walk me through whatever problem I have. Operating a YouTube channel like this helps solve one of the biggest objections on the part of their audience, that it will be over their head and they won't be able to do it themselves. Now, the other content distribution channel they have is their blog, and this is where they do a lot of other things. They feature some of the better sites on Squarespace and also use it to talk about their partnerships. This is where they can get inspirational and aspirational, which speaks directly to the kind of people who use a site like Squarespace. Think of small business owners, entrepreneurs, artists, all people who love to see a good success story. And this helps them with another marketing goal, which is to help elevate their customers or their potential customers. They are producing content that doesn't directly sell the product, but rather content that will help grow their audience, raise awareness, and most importantly, build trust. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, jumping out of obscurity, just getting to the point where people know about you is one thing, but building trust with those people is the real test. Enough trust that they decide to buy. And so maybe you're thinking, why would I need to look at content strategy for my business? Well, I just pointed it out. It's all about building trust and finding ways to remind your audience about you after they've left you. So let me explain how I did this for one of the restaurants I work with. The one of my biggest clients is here in New York City, a classic old restaurant in the heart of Greenwich Village. And when I took over their marketing, they were doing the same two or three things and finding very little success. It was the law of diminishing returns. So we identified a series of problems that needed solving. Four specific areas, in fact. Number one, could we find a way to drive more traffic to the website? Number two, could we improve open rates on our emails? Number three, could we sell more specialty items like our, our line of handmade chocolates? And number four, could we expand our programming in the restaurant to change the impression people had about us? Armed with those four goals, we then worked backwards. We came up with a plan for each one, and that led us 
to a couple of solutions. First, we wanted to drive more traffic to the website. How could we do that? Well, I recommended overhauling their blog, make it upscale, sharp, professional, more than a blog. We revamped it and rebranded it as a high-end digital magazine. Articles, interviews, photo spreads, and recipes. Each and every week, we would deliver fresh content for our list, and we ended up growing that email list to more than 40,000 names, adding just about 10,000 new subscribers in 18 months. Well, that gave us more reasons to email our list and diversify the kind of emails we sent out. So it wasn't just uh, us blasting the list every time we wanted to sell something, right? The old marketing team would just send out an e-blast advertising Thanksgiving or Christmas Eve dinner or Valentine's Day or the new summer lunch menu and so on. All they did was hit up the list every time they wanted them to buy something from us. So we knew why those people were on our list. We wanted to be able to sell to them. But I asked my bosses, why would they want to be on our list? What are they getting out of this relationship? That simple question was the turning point for overhauling the way we interacted with our audience. So I explained that most of our emails should be us giving things away, free recipes or wine recommendations or interviews with some of our purveyors and partners. Really, we started to adopt the Gary V model, something he talked about in his last book, Jab, 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 Right Hook. Give, 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 ask. Giving things away like content is virtually free, and yet the benefits are limitless. That's because you're building trust with your audience, acknowledging their attention and their patronage, and honoring it on an ongoing basis. And in turn, we saw the traffic to our website go up. We'd publish an article and then send an e-blast to the list with a link to that article. People would click the link and head to the website. Incidentally, then, the open rates on our emails started going up, and that's because people weren't being sold to all the time. We were providing information, entertainment. We were giving them something. If they get in the habit of clicking on our emails, then eventually they will also click on one of the emails when we were selling something. And that's exactly what happened. In time, we saw that our online sales started going up. We also started embedding ads into the articles, not selling our chocolates, but just letting people know about them. And we found it worked because a lot of people had no idea we made our own chocolates in-house. So finally, the last goal was to diversify the kind of programming we offered in the restaurant. And all of these other things helped us open a dialogue of sorts with our audience. And in fact, we did start broadening our offerings. We did a, a whiskey dinner and a couple of winemaker dinners. We did a caviar dinner series, which included five different courses, each utilizing a different kind of caviar. We did a harvest dinner and a chocolate tasting with white milk and dark chocolate courses, all paired with various high-end sipping spirits. And that brought people back to the restaurant and charged the place with a new excitement. It took some organization and it did take some work, but the business was healthier because of it. And so I challenge you to start thinking about that for your own business, but I can already see hands going up. So let's address the obvious question. How do you do this in a simple, effective, straightforward manner? Well, first things first, you start by identifying all of the channels available to you. So for the client I just mentioned, we had our website, we had our blog now rebranded as a high-end digital magazine, but it's basically still a blog. We have a Vimeo channel where we host a bunch of our video content. We have our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and then we have our email list. 
all of those work in synergy with each other. Content is sometimes cross-posted uh, or sometimes just cross-promoted, uh, though different channels do different things for us. Number two, what do we mean by content? Well, content can be anything you put into the world. Photos, videos, articles, interviews, recipes, podcasts, whatever. Content just refers to things you create. And it works best if you can be consistent with what you do. So the client I've been speaking about publishes a different magazine feature every single week, and it varies. One week it'll be an interview, the next week it'll be a photo spread from a recent wine dinner, then it'll be a recipe, then a feature showcasing one of the farms we work with, and so on. Then on Facebook, I work with the wine director to do a weekly Facebook Live broadcast. So each and every week, we talk about some interesting topic revolving around wine. Sometimes there's a winemaker in town, so we'll do an interview. Other times, it'll be a tutorial about a specific region. Other times, we'll be talking about some of the, the new buy-the-glass offerings coming onto the list. We also put out consistent content on our social channels, and then our email list is used to notify our audience about all the things that we have going on. So we'll send an email saying, this week, we're bringing you an interview with so-and-so. Now, moving to number three, determining the right strategy. As I said earlier in this episode, a strategy has to be tied to a certain goal. Just like I did for my client, you'll want to identify a couple of goals, then armed with those, you can build a strategy to help achieve it. So let's say you run a small BYOB restaurant. Let's say it's upscale casual leaning toward fine dining. You buy organic when possible, everything's seasonally minded. You do great business Thursday through Sunday, but you're looking for ways to boost business on, let's say Monday and Tuesday nights. So that's goal number one. Let's say you also want to start building your email list. That's goal number two. And then you also want to start building partnerships with the community, the other businesses in your area. That's number three. So now we've got three goals. I would do something like this. First thing I would do, I would start a blog on that website. You'll update it once a week with some sort of entry, and it doesn't have to be fancy. I, I know a woman who uh, runs this small diner in Pennsylvania, and every week she prepares a new soup. So every Monday morning now, she updates the blog with the soup of the week. Just a simple headline saying what it is, along with a picture or two, and then a paragraph talking about the soup. So some weeks she'll talk about how this was her grandmother's recipe, and it was always one of her favorites growing up. She could remember sipping it on cold days after coming in from playing in the snow. Then other weeks she'll say, well, this is a riff on a recipe I found uh, in Bon Appetit magazine. I swapped out the cardamom for nutmeg and added in some pureed kabocha squash in addition to the butternut squash, but... You get the point. It just lets the audience in and strengthens the relationship. So one entry a week, and she does a, a picture and a paragraph talking about the soup. So you'll start a blog, and you'll commit yourself to posting once a week. And maybe it's talking about the soup and sandwich special, or maybe it'll be pictures of the specials you're working on for the week, or maybe you'll elevate it the way I did for my client, offering up articles, interviews, and recipes. The key is consistency. Just like Seinfeld was on every Thursday, right? People knew when it was on and where to find it. This podcast, in fact, comes out every Monday. So come up with a schedule you can stick to and then stick to it. Then I would start capturing email addresses in the restaurant and on your website. So typically on the website, you would give something away. This is often called a, a freebie or a content upgrade. You're giving people something in exchange for their email address. Sometimes it's a recipe or a coupon maybe for 10% off. 
Uh, so Just Salad is a salad chain, and they famously do this. They have a pop-up on their website that says, get 10% off your next order if you sign up for our list. Sometimes you'll notice that I'll, I'll do this on the podcast. I'll offer a link to a, a workbook or some additional resource, um, like my gear guide, that goes with the week's episode. People click the link, input their email address, and it automatically sends the freebie. In exchange for people giving me their email address, I give them something of value. Plenty of you out there listening have already done this, and it's a win-win. You get something out of it that will help you with your business, and I get the, um, the privilege of being able to stay in touch with you via email. So every week when you put out a new post, you're going to email your list letting them know that the new post is up. Get in the habit of staying in contact with your audience. Now, once you have a healthy list, you have something other people will want. Just like we talked about earlier in this episode, you have eyeballs. And now do you see how we went a long way out of the way to arrive back to where we are now? As your audience grows, you will gain leverage. So now let's go back to the first problem, filling some downtime business. And the third problem, which was to build relationships with other businesses in the area. What if you partner with one of the local bookshops in your town and you host an author event on the first Monday of every month. Customers would spend, let's say, $75 and get a three-course menu plus a copy of the book, and the author would be on hand to read from the book and answer any questions from fans and then sign copies afterward. You're going to email your list, and the bookstore is going to email theirs. You're each going to benefit from the partnership. They get to sell copies of the books, plus they can offer their patrons a unique experience and you get to fill your restaurant on what would otherwise be a dead Monday night. And then, of course, those 30 or 40 or 50 people who come to the event will now be introduced to your restaurant. And if you take care of them, perhaps they'll talk it up or return the following month with friends. You'll be able to approach businesses because you will have something they want, which is access. You have access to a list of 5,000 names or 10,000 names or 100,000 names, whatever that number is. It's a real number and it has value. Likewise, they will have a list, so it works both ways. Now to go one step further, I would create a bookmark with the restaurant's info and slide it into every single book that gets sold that night. Maybe even a little offer on the backside of the bookmark. Present this bookmark anytime in January to get two free glasses of champagne to start your meal. I would then host some sort of Facebook Live on the night of the event. Maybe you broadcast the author's reading to your online community, something to help magnify the reach of what you're doing, and then post photos to social media all night long in real time to get people excited for the event. Such a blast tonight, hosting John Smith, who read from his novel XYZ. We hope you'll join us next month as Jane Doe will be visiting from San Francisco reading from her new book. And in the matter of just a few weeks, we've developed a content strategy to solve three specific problems that were outlined. Now, no bookstore in town, figure something else out. Maybe there's a wine store down the street and on Tuesday nights, customers get 15% all of their wines at the store, plus it's free corkage in the restaurant. The hope is that people walk down the street to buy wine and then bring it to your restaurant to enjoy during dinner. Are there other restaurants in town? Pick one that's opposite of yours and, and offer a mashup meal where the chefs collaborate on a unique six-course tasting, or, or maybe they alternate courses. Content strategy is about attention, and it's about building trust with your audience. So you can write a blog, 
or start your own YouTube channel. You can go live on Facebook once a week or you can launch an IGTV channel or start your own podcast to reach new audiences. Whatever it is, just make sure it provides value to your audience. Make sure it delivers something they want and need and make sure you stay consistent. Remember, marketing is all about serving an audience. It's about identifying a problem and then solving that problem. The market is way too noisy these days to just sit back and wait for people to pick up the phone and call you or wait for them to wander into your restaurant. I believe you need to find ways to identify your audience, introduce yourself to them, and start building trust. Now, all of you out there are part of my content strategy. It is about serving you, my audience, and giving you the things you need. I hope you found this week's episode helpful. I hope it's given you things to, to think about, uh, to chew over. Uh, I, I hope it helps uh, move the needle in your business. For this week's assignment, I want you to do three things. First, I want you to identify all the channels available to you. What is currently in your control? Second, I want you to identify three or four problems that you wish to solve. And then third, I want you to start brainstorming solutions to those problems. What could you do to start building trust with your audience? Is it a weekly blog or a Facebook Live or a podcast? There are so many options out there and it's never been easier to put content out into the world. Now, for continuing education, I'm going to recommend a book called Content Chemistry. You'll find the link in the show notes. It's a fun, illustrated handbook for getting started with content strategy. If today's episode was a primer on the subject, that book will take you the next stretch in your journey. As always, I want to thank you for being here. If you stopped showing up, there'd be no reason for me to show up. So thank you. Keep spreading the word. If you haven't done so yet, hit the subscribe button to stay current on new episodes. And if you feel so inclined, please go leave us a rating. That's it for me. I will see you all next week. <laughs>